This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti. Sean Cherry, two guests this week, two really uh, bright, thoughtful guys. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're in sports media, you, you certainly read and appreciate their work, I think. First up is Michael Lee. He's a senior NBA writer for The Athletic. Does uh, just phenomenal, interesting work at our place. And prior to that was at Yahoo. And uh, again, I think all NBA fans are familiar with Michael Lee. He is followed by the Washington Post writer Robert Klemko, who is a investigative reporter in the sports department. But over the last couple of months, has been assigned to news, and has been doing some just really, really fascinating work and in reporting, including covered the Trump rally in Tulsa. So it, with Michael, we get into a conversation of um, of how he's processed the last couple of weeks uh, in America, sort of what it says about the moment, the NBA's return to play plans, whether it can work. Really interesting stuff about um, how the NBA is going to approach writers being inside the bubble and and what access they might have, and then just you know what what NBA activism um, may be uh, over the next couple of months and and how that will be covered by all entities, including the TV networks. Uh, Robert Klemko comes on to discuss his move from sports to news and covering politics versus sports and interviewing people around the country and. And how they react to him when he identifies himself as a Washington Post reporter. Robert's had some, I mean, just a, some horrific things sort of sent to him in his social media mentions. He discusses, uh, he discusses that. Um, and then just uh, what's going to happen in the NFL, uh, you know, as we head towards uh, their start of the season. And NFL player activism, which is absolutely coming. And, you know, what are the big owners? Jerry Jones is the Robert Krafts, the Maras, the Rooney's. How are they going to react to this stuff? Because that's sort of where the rubber meets the road. So two great guests, Michael Lee and Robert Klemko, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, my first guest is a colleague of mine at The Athletic, uh, tremendous writer, uh, really just thoughtful, terrific colleague. Michael Lee is a senior NBA writer for The Athletic. If you follow that sport, I'm sure you know who he is and you've read his work or checked him out on Twitter. And he joins me on the Sports Media Podcast. Mike, welcome. I appreciate you making time. I know you, uh, you're you working, you and your wife are working with a, a newborn, basically. So I really appreciate you coming on and making a little bit of time. Yeah, yeah. Just celebrated uh, one month with a uh, second child. So uh, I'm not, I'm, if I don't make a lot of sense today and I'm not coherent just realize that I'm going on a little bit of sleep so that, that's my life now there you go first congratulations second uh, this podcast hasn't made sense in four years so you're fit and beautiful uh, <laughs> cool cool all right so I want to start with on a we're gonna get to the NBA but I, I want to start um on a on a serious and 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 sober note and it's just a sort of an open-ended question and you can take it however you want but how have you 
process, Mike, the last three plus weeks in America? Um, yes, it's been tough because, uh, you know, I feel like there have been, you know, times in my life when I've been encouraged by, you know, protests and marches and by what could possibly become and, and feeling like this will be the moment, this will be the movement that'll get things going. And, um, and I'll, I'll be, I'll admit that, you know, when the initial protest began, I was very jaded, very jaded, very, um, withdrawn from it all because I feel like we've done this dance. And for me, it's sort of annoying that we keep coming back to the same place and people's memories just are so short that, um, that we move on. And, uh, but, you know, I've seen a lot of things that are encouraging about what's happening now. You know, um, when I see a lot of these statues topple over, it actually makes me a little excited <laughs> because um, there's so many reasons why seeing like a Confederate statue just fall um, when it shouldn't have been there in the first place uh, that just lifts my spirits. <laughs> um, and so I, I know that a lot of the gestures that are made from corporations and companies are just done because it's the end thing. It's a popular thing. But I also feel like at some point they needed to move, you know, to the right side anyway. So if this has to be it, then let, let, let's, so be it. Um, let them, you know, say that they're going to be allies and then let's hold them accountable to it. You know, um, everybody wants to be on the right side right now. And, uh, and I'm encouraged by that. Um, you know, I, I'm discouraged by the fact that, you know, I had to see another or so many other, you know, black, unarmed black people murdered, um, you know, by, by the people who are, you know, supposed to serve and protect us. Um, you know, I've had my own encounters with the police over the years in my life, nothing very serious, nothing where I ever felt like my life was completely in danger, but, um, I, I have had moments and I've realized throughout the last couple of weeks that I've had a couple of run-ins police I just simply forgot <laughs> because the ones that are the most egregious are the ones that stand out and then I was like oh yeah but remember that one time you got pulled over there and and um and so some things just are starting to creep back you know um and so it's just uh to me it's it's sad um but I am you know um uh, I have been moved now and seeing you know the young people out there on the streets you know and really engaged and really uh, committed, you know, because it takes a commitment to be out there and trying to demand change during a pandemic. <laughs> and, and, you know, people are truly risking their lives and their health to try to make a change. And uh, I, I stand solidly behind them because I think that's really inspiring. That's well said, Mike. Um, you know, both of us work in sports. And one of the things we've seen over the last couple of uh couple of weeks is uh athletes voices really being magnified um and not just those who have sort of been in this fight for a while like lebron james but we're seeing college students i think recognize what kind of power uh they and what kind of leverage they actually have when they start um making demands uh and saying that they're not going to play unless these things um, change. We're seeing probably for the first time in my lifetime uh, a ton of white athletes come out in support of athletes of color. They have, generally speaking, I'm not trying to make a sort of a uh, um, 
a generic statement here, but as a general rule, they've been on the sidelines more than they've sort of been out in front, and that's changed a little bit. From your perspective, Mike, um, how do you how do you see the role of uh, of sports, and particularly sort of athlete activism, um, when it comes to when it comes to issues of systemic racism and police brutality we're about to enter and we'll get into this when we talk about the nba we're about to enter a really interesting time here where athletes are going to be playing sports um in a very untraditional manner with a spotlight on them and probably as great a chance as ever to sort of use all forms of media to express things that they want to express that go beyond sports i think this is just something that's been building over the years you know um you know we've come from you know a time in the in the 50s and 60s when you saw you know athletes you know on the front lines when you saw bill russell marching you know uh with on the, at the march in washington with, with martin luther king and you've seen you know um you know criminal jabbar and you know you've seen guys you know you know really push tommy smith and um you know you've seen guys you know really make statements you know in the 60s and then it, sort of in the 80s, you know, sort of late 70s, you saw OJ sort of change the narrative for athletes where you had, could really, you know, you know, move into the, the homes of, of, of white people, you know, by, by being this, you know, smiling, happy, you know, acceptable, you know, person that they were willing to, to cheer for and root for. And then you saw Michael Jordan take it to the next level where, you know, he was somebody who was really tried to be as apolitical as possible. Um, there was money to be made and there was a brand to sell, uh, that, you know, that, that sort of made it so he didn't want to use the power that he had, you know, to make change. And I think over the, over the years, you know, another generation has sort of seen that they can do more and they've recognized their power. They've recognized that, you know, from the example of, of previous athletes that, they can do more than just go out there and play basketball and just accept endorsement deals. <clears throat> they can, they can create partnerships. They can sort of, you know, really leverage their power and influence to say, okay, you want to do business with me, invest in this area first and make sure that these kids are taken care of or make sure that this uh, community group is taken care of. And then we can talk and really sort of, you know, putting the feet to the fire because they're, they're profiting off of your likeness well, then I'm going to find a way that other people can benefit from that. And I think that's sort of what's been happening with, with sports over, over the past, past couple of years. LeBron, you know, has really been, you know, at the forefront of all that and really allowing players to sort of see that they are more than athletes and that their power has to be utilized and maximized while they are playing, you know, while they have that platform, while people care about what they say and what they do. And, um, and you're starting to see that now. And I think that when it comes to this issue right now with police brutality and systemic racism, that's something that directly impacts every, you know, African-American athlete, every black athlete. Um, because if it's not going to directly touch them, you know, which, which it has, you know, you, you could find any NBA player and ask them, you know, what was your first encounter with the police? Like they'll have a story. I'm sure the vast majority will if they don't. Um, and so it's been surprising to me to hear a lot of players come out and say about, speak about their experiences and, and sort of that sort of brings it home that, you know, just because you have a certain level of fame, money, you know, prestige, you know, it doesn't mean you're immune from the same, you know, situations that can strike anybody. 
And I think you've seen it from Sterling Brown, you know, being, you know, um, you know, harassed and you know, mistreated by the Milwaukee police from Thabocephalosha having his leg broken um, outside of a club. And so these players know that they're not far removed from that. So when they see a George Floyd get murdered, and when you see a Steven Jackson, who was a friend of his, an NBA player, you know, who calls himself twin because he looks like him. Like, so you know that's personal. If he sees somebody that actually looks like him being, you know, um, you know, murdered on the street. And so he has to come out and speak out in that sense. So it's not like he's somebody who was always a political, you know, person. He's just somebody who's moved now, who's sort of been forced into this movement. And so I think that a lot of players see that and they realize that their only way that they can change things is that they really use their voices um, to make good on, you know, helping other people. And I think that's, that's what you're seeing now. So that this is sort of an awakening in a lot of ways. I mean, we've seen things building. We saw Carmelo march with the um, people in Baltimore, Freddie Gray. We saw, you know, um, the Miami Heat wear the hoodies in honor of Trayvon Martin after he was murdered. Um, but now I think that, you know, you see that slow build over the years and now you see a generation of players who have one seen, at least in the NBA, there is no backlash to be being vocal. You know, players wore I can't breathe t-shirts, the league got behind them. Um, when, you know, Donald Sterling was caught making racist comments, the Clippers made a statement and, and put the, the t-shirts in the at center court and the league got behind them and got rid of Donald Sterling. So I think players realize that if they do speak out, if they make their voices heard, that they can really initiate change. Now, we've seen in the NFL, <clears throat> Colin Kaepernick was blackballed for it, but you can start to see now the tide is shifting. The NBA, I mean, the NFL is, is recognizing the error of its ways, not totally because they haven't fully acknowledged what they did to Kaep Kaepernick, but you're seeing that now people are viewing Kaepernick in a different light. Some people are, I, I always view him in the same light, but some people are starting to really recognize that what he was doing was a sincere cause and that people need to really get behind it because the issues that he knelt for are real. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mike, um, the NBA is heading now to Orlando, and um, it's going to be some uh, just an amazingly, uh, I don't know how I sort of phrase it, you know, a grand experiment basically as to whether um, they can pull this off with, um, you know, knock on wood, the the least amount of health issues that, um, you know, that, that, that seems to be unfortunately now bubbling up throughout sports. Um, you cover this sport every day. Um, you've seen obviously sort of uh, what players are saying and, and the issues that surround all this. So a couple questions here. Uh, first off, um, what for you is the most interesting thing about this is it is it the larger experiment that they're going to try to sort of pull this off in a quarantine is it the basketball part as to 
if we can get here, like what teams would be able to thrive in this environment? Is it the prospect of these guys um, speaking on issues that go well beyond basketball? Um, or maybe it's all of that. But what, what are you what are you anticipating uh, when they when knock on wood when they finally get to Orlando and and a regular season starts to commence? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm very like apprehensive about all this coming together. You know, um, I was among those who pl- applauded the NBA when they shut the league down, which essentially forced the world and uh, to shut down. Uh, after Rudy Gobert was uh, you know, found to have contracted or, or you know the coronavirus, I felt like they took a bold step that needed to be made, and I sort of respected that they were being patient and diligent, you know, um, you know how they were going to maybe come back or not come back, and so for me to sort of see what's happening in Florida, where there's been a huge spike in coronavirus cases, especially in Orange County, where they plan on you know, hosts in this bubble, I have a lot of concern <clears throat> because I feel like we know that what the motivation is. It's not necessarily to help players, you know, fill their, their competitive juices. It's really to make money. And I think that a lot of times when, you know, that is the main driver, if that's what's pushing you more than anything, then there's a large potential of things going poorly. And there's a very slim chance that this is pulled off perfectly with nothing happening that the, the, the league will wind up regretting. It's very slim. You know, it's like trying to, you know, thread a needle with a bow and arrow. Like it's going to require a certain level of perfection to, to actually be executed. And I don't know if it's going to happen. You know, you've seen, you know, uh, Nikola Jokic has already, you know, discovered that he has a coronavirus and, you know, you feel like, okay, yeah, these are young athletes. They'll be able to survive it. They'll be fine and it won't really bother them. But we don't know how it's going to affect them long-term. We don't understand this. It's called a novel coronavirus for a reason. There's so much about it that we don't know, we don't understand. And I feel like it's such a risk involved with this that um, I understand the financial um, you know, motivations, but I don't necessarily think that you know, it's worth it considering um, what you could potentially lose, you know, you know, not just from guys maybe contracting it and having the health health risk from it, but from rushing guys back who haven't been playing five on five basketball for several months, and not just pushing them to play basketball again, but to play playoff basketball again, which is the most intense of it all. And then when you throw in the fact that it's a respiratory disease that and these guys are going to be breathing on each other and running up and down the court and playing a lot of games in a short amount of time. Um, it just seems to me like it's <laughs> there's a it's dangerous to me, and so I I am concerned about all that. But if they are able to get past that and everybody's healthy, you know I think there are a lot of angles that, like you mentioned, that will be compelling. Social justice aspect of it, if players find a way to make it, make statements either through T-shirts or you know through their press conferences, making statements, then using the uh, you know, the press conferences is an opportunity to, you know, just speak on whatever they want to speak on. I think you're seeing LeBron again, I mentioned, but you see him now not afraid to use his platform to encourage, you know, a uh, fight against voter suppression and making sure that people's voices are heard at the ballot um, in November, um, when I think a lot of players and a lot of people want to see 
um, some change come across in this country. Um, so I think that, you know, when you see all that, <clears throat> you know, it's going to be interesting. But my main thing is just I'm sitting back nervous because um, I, I just don't want this to become a costly, you know, experiment. Mike, how do you anticipate this will be covered? Um, have you gotten any word as to whether the NBA um, has a place for media people inside the bubble? If not, I would think because of the importance of uh, of media here, and I'm not talking about just ESPN uh, Turner, I'm talking about sort of the, the larger NBA media ecosystem that covers the game. Uh, maybe they'll do some kind of video stuff or Zoom stuff. Have you got any sense as to as to how the game might be covered outside of television. Yeah, um, there will be, I think, up to 15 writers inside the bubble. Um, they'll have to pay a fee, a very expensive fee, to be there for every day. They'll be tested right along with the players. Um, they'll be allowed to sit in the arena and watch the games. Um, and then they'll also be allowed to go into the press conferences afterward and, and have a chance to ask questions directly to the players. Um, you know, they'll also, from what I hear, that to have access to every team will be practicing every day. So you have access to whatever team is practicing and you probably will, you know, do Zoom interviews or some maybe a social distance interview uh, with players. Um, you know, I, I, I do fear that the coverage not fear. I do feel like the coverage is still going to come down to who has access and who has, um, you know, the resources and the connections, you know, because you won't have the opportunity to really tell the type of stories that you've told in the past where you, when you had locker room access. You know, I remember uh, last year during the NBA finals, you know, some of the better stories that I told during that, that series were because I was in the locker room and able to talk to guys and just get them just, you know, on, on different subjects, like after game three of the NBA finals, when the Fred Van Bleet had a very good game and it sort of continued his streak of really great games after his son was born, I just made a joke to him, you know, just about him, you know, playing so well after his son was born. And he, he said something to me just in passing that I was like, Oh man, he made, made a, a made a reference to his own father and the fact that he lost his dad at five and just what it meant for him to be able to hold his son, you know, the first time. And, and he thought back about his dad who was murdered when he was five years old and just how he had to live his life without, you know, his dad. And then, you know, I came to find out that his son is named Frederick, but it's spelled, you know, like Fred Derek with two R's. And uh, that's the way his father's name is spelled. His father is not named Van Bleet. Um, but it's, but it's, but it, the name passed on the first Frederick to the second Frederick to now the third Frederick. And they had this connection through their, through their name. And I figured all that just from one conversation in the locker room that I won't have the ability to do anymore because everything's going to be social distance and you, got, you, got, you won't be able to, to tell these type of stories, um, that you can only get from just engaging with guys and sort of dealing with them in a more relaxed setting than at a press conference when they have to perform and the lights are on and they have to answer questions knowing that it's going to be broadcast out to, you know, thousands of people or millions of people. Like, Fred Van Bleet is an open guy. He's not really afraid to talk about a lot of topics, but he may not have been willing to tell the story of his dad, you know, to the whole world 
you know, but he wouldn't be willing to talk to just one person about it in a more comfortable, relaxed setting. And I think that's the type of thing that'll be missed from a lot of this. So a lot of the stories, good stories that are going to come from this are going to come from having previous relationships with agents and family members. The bubble itself, I think, is going to be very difficult because players are going to be under a lot of stress to perform, but also to stay safe and stay healthy. And I'm really intrigued about how that's going to come together because it's already um, a mental struggle uh, just to be an elite athlete in the perform at that level, and especially when you're chasing the championship. But when you throw in the element of the health of your health and being separated from your family, not having that support system, um, it's going to be a, a challenge for these guys to perform through all that. It's going to require a lot of mental strength, and it's going to require a lot from, from writers who are down there to try to find the tell find a way to tell those stories when they won't be readily accessible. Mike, do you have any uh, sense as to how those writers or how those outlets will be chosen? Um, I think a lot of it's going to come down to who's willing to pay. <laughs> and I think that, you know, uh, you know, I think that, you know, ESPN is going to have home court advantage, obviously, because it's at the wild world of sports. And uh, I think they'll just, they'll have <laughs> ability just to show up and hang out because, <laughs> You know they don't have to pay, <laughs> um, but uh, but I think they'll they'll probably they'll probably a lot you know um, you know a couple of national writers people who've already you know have a reputation as covering the league, um, so I think that they'll the national people will have that to their advantage, and like I said they'll they'll be adhering to the same rules no in and out privileges, and you'll have to be there from for three months you know three months and um, I don't know if they'll have the ability like I think if when the playoffs start, you know, teams will be allowed to have family members come inside the bubble. I don't think writers will have that opportunity. They're going to just have to be there and, um, and live in that life of isolation, um, you know, for, for a pretty extended amount of time. Do you think the athletics going to be one of those? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I honestly, yeah, I hope so. I don't know the oh, answer. Yeah, to that, no, but I absolutely. Would, I yeah. That, I, uh, I, I I'm so. under the assumption that there are going to be at least two people from the athletic there. Oh, okay. Good. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, like you said, it's an incredibly, it would be an incredibly interesting journalism assignment at the same time. There are so many potential downsides to it. I, I would say at my, not that I'm being asked anyway, but in where I am in my life, I wouldn't go just given I have young kids, I wouldn't want that risk. But, uh, but I certainly understand anybody who would, uh, who'd want to go and want the challenge at the same time. I, un- I understand anybody who would also opt not to go for various reasons, but if I would not go, I mean, I just not it. If, if I was 29, no kids, no, no wife, no responsibilities. I think I'd go, but I would not go now. It'd be so appealing from the aspect of if you're one of the 15 or so select writers that are in that bubble, you have a lot of power because you're the one that everyone's going to be looking to, to tell the stories. So you have a chance to really be a voice for the for the, uh, the league. Like you get a chance to be the person that everyone has to read and, and care about. So I definitely get the appeal of wanting to be down there um, because you know it's just such a unique experience. Um, you know who knows how relaxed guys may get as they get comfortable with being there, and maybe you know guys aren't getting sick and they feel safe and. You know, the NBA may start letting down more guards and allowing more access. So it could wind up being a truly beneficial experience. You, you know, the, the book 
that could come out of it from, you know, being able to get people to share their stories about living in the bubble um, would be something that will probably sell off the charts because everyone wants to know how you, you pull that off. And, you know, 2020 is such a unique year with all the, the, the things that are going on and to have that be the first sports league to, to you know, try to play through, through that. Um, I mean, yeah, it's an amazing story. And so, um, but yeah, you're right. If, if I didn't have a newborn child, you know, one month old, um, you know, I, I would get it, but I'm, I'm leaning more towards, you know, I need, I need to be here with the people who, you know, are going to need me more than anybody else right now. So, um, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. I understand where you're coming from on that. Um, all right. A couple more here, you know, ESPN and Turner obviously have, um, the the television rights uh to these games and so that um they're in a very very unique position given um they're going to be bringing the sport whatever however the sport is played now to uh to the masses and i wonder how uh, the nba obviously is sort of the one sport where i i don't um how do i sort of phrase this it's 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 clearly the most progressive sport out there when it comes to the sort of activism among athletes. I think clearly um, those who cover the sport, even at the television level, understand what the NBA is. That said, this is going to be really a unique experience. And Mike, I wonder from your perspective, like, how do you think ESPN and Turner are going to cover this? They're going to cover the basketball the way they always cover the basketball. But, um, you know, the, 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 there would be some... I don't know if risk is the right word, Mike, but it, it would take a little bit of some, some balls for ESPN to just air press conference after press conference where athletes are talking about things that have nothing to do with sports. Um, and so I wonder, um, you know, I, I don't know how they're going to cover it. I'm certainly going to write about it. But for, I guess from your perspective, I wonder, how do you think the television side of this is going to be? Because at the end of the day, that's the biggest and most powerful platform when it comes to bringing the sport back uh, uh, you know, back to us after this lengthy absence. Yeah, well, I think if the SP Awards that aired recently to, to say anything that you know ESPN is ready to take that shift. You know, they understand that if they're going to be in you know bed with athletes, if they're going to tell athlete stories, and they're going to tell the whole story, and that means whatever story they want to tell. And so I don't think they'll really have the ability to call the shots on that. You know, if if LeBron wants to talk about voter suppression. You, you're going to get a one-on-one with LeBron, then you're going to sit there and listen to whatever he has to say because that's going to be content and that's what people want to hear right now. And so, um, and I think that honestly for a lot of players who, you know, didn't want to go or don't feel like, you know, distract from, you know, the movement, I think that in a lot of ways it could actually reignite the movement in some ways because, you know, when you've been marching for several weeks, you know, you're going to get fatigued. You're going to probably get a little disenchanted if you don't see, you know, results all, uh, with everything. And so you're going to need a second wave of energy. And I think that in a, in a month from now, um, you know, you might not see people on the streets, but you will see NBA players. And if they're still putting pushing, you know, for Breonna Taylor's, you know, murderers to, you know, be held accountable, then that'll be an opportunity to reignite that, you know, if, um, if George Floyd's, you know, um, murderers are still allowed to walk around, um, you know, on the street, you know, then somebody will, Jalen Brown maybe will raise, raise that issue, um, to, to people and let people be aware. 
And so um, I think it's it's a huge platform, and all eyes will be on the league. And I think that if they don't, if the ESPN and Turner don't cover it the way it's actually actually going down, if they cut off players and say we're just going to talk about you know your game against the Clippers, and that's all we want to talk about, then I think they would just be doing a disservice not only to the athletes that they're covering, but also to the public who really wants to hear from them right now. That's well said. Um... Lastly, Micah, this is sort of just me just asking you sort of a journalism uh, nerd question here. Um, the NBA, uh, in terms of sort of a transactional league, transactional news is just amazing. Uh, it's the, the amount of transactional news that happens in that league is uh, is crazy. And, you know, you get the biggest sort of transaction, like, you know, Kawhi's decided to uh, go play with the Clippers, and then you have even really small transactions like uh, – you know, uh, Team X assigned Player X, and Player X is like um, uh, the twelfth. Uh, you know, the the twelfth person on the roster. So much of those transactions uh, seem to be reported by two people, Adrian Wojnarowski and Sham Sharnaya. There are obviously other stories that get broken elsewhere. Chris Haynes is, a, yeah, yeah. I'm not giving short shrift to Haynes and and Mark Stein and 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 others who. Um, who, who break, uh, David Aldridge, who break the news. But what is it like in the middle of that? Like, you, you, you're, you know, to me, um, you do a lot of analysis pieces. Uh, you've broken your share of news, but you're, you're to me, like, sort of your, your, you offer commentary, you offer feature writing, you offer uh, analysis, you offer reporting. But um, I know you know all the people in this field. Like, how competitive is that? transactional business in the NBA? Because I, I look at the NBA and um, and maybe it's the same for the NFL and baseball too, but man, like uh, social media gets so excited with every transaction and it's just kind of, you know what I mean? It's just like fascinating to to sort of watch like after a transaction happens. Uh, not only is the transaction news, but a lot of times it's like the reporter who got the news, like like gets a mark on some imaginary scoreboard. Yeah, yeah you know? Becomes a story. No, yeah, for real. I mean, I had a chance of working with uh, um, Woj and Shams at uh, at, uh, at Yahoo, and obviously we work with Shams now at the Athletic. And so I, I realized the work that goes into you know being the ones to break these stories, and a lot of it is because of a, a dedication to um, these agents and, and front office executives, like staying in constant contact with them, you know stay in constant communication with them so that, you know, you're not just trying to get information at the trade deadline or when free agency starts, but that you've sort of put your line yourself up so that when they need to share information, they're going to go to you first. And I think that's really what it comes down to. It's just like, who are you talking to? How are you, you know, maintaining a relationship with them, even when there's not a story that you need from them? And I think that's what you're seeing and why you see these two guys do it because they're committed to that. You know, they're committed to the transactional news while like you see maybe other guys out there trying to tell, you know, do feature stories or, or other things where, you know, you, you're more out there um, in locker rooms and, and talking to guys on a more frequent basis. Um, so I think it's just, it's just more about what you want to do and what your lane is. And, I think that for a lot of like beat writers who cover their teams and sort of have conceded the fact that if there's a big story with their team, it's probably going to be broken by Shams or Woj. Uh, that can be frustrating. It can be upsetting because you also put in a lot of work with your team and try to make sure that um, that you're on top of everything. But 
a lot of teams, you know, executives, uh, they feel like, well, if we want to get the news out, we'll just get it to one of these voices out here who can hit a million people right away. And there we are. We've, we've already allowed the leak to get out to where we wanted to get out. Whereas they had, you know, given it to a beat writer who may not have as large a following, it's going to trickle down a little bit slower, right? It's going to take a little while for it to hit the masses. Whereas if you give it to Woj, she's got 4 million Twitter followers or whatever, boom, the minute it's out there, everybody knows it. And so, um, and also he's so connected. He has so many sources. You don't know who the inside person in the team with the team is, but I know that some teams already know that once they make it, once they sign somebody or make a deal, they know that the first call they make sometimes when they're in the room, cause I've had agents tell me that like, I don't know how he got that because I was in the room and everyone said, don't give it up to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, you know, like, like the minute they signed somebody, somebody sitting at that table with this texting, you know, just signed so and so, boom, 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 and there it is. It's and then it's, it's, it's shared with the masses, just like that. So, but it, 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 I respect them because I know that it's not just that they just wake up in the morning and are and just getting lucky with just all these, all this, all these scoops. This is earned through just this constant relationship building, networking where because you're the one they trust yeah it's amazing i mean those guys work their ass off unquestionably and i would just say i would just say that uh like because i love the nba um i, I have a sort of a uh i wouldn't call it a bias but sort of a predisposition to reading a lot of nba content and whether it's like local people like candace buckner or in my neck of the woods guys like uh uh you know mike range doug smith etc uh and then you know, from you mentioned Chris Haynes and the Zach Lowe's and like the athletic is just it's crazy. The amount of incredible NBA uh, people we have there, Marcus Thompson and Sam. Mack. Like, if I keep naming people, just people get mad because I didn't name everybody. But it's like it really it really is. Honestly, uh, I think like if from top to bottom, not, there's no bottom from basically I, I think it's the the right now out of all the sports, I think it has the most depth in terms of sort of uh, pure writing, uh, power and ammunition. And so, um, it's really remarkable to just sort of read everything that we read on there. And obviously you're a, you're a big part of that, but, uh, but yeah, competitive wise, um, you got to figure out, I guess, just what your lane is and then work that lane because, uh, because everybody, you got a lot, you know, it's, it's like sort of being part of, uh, um, you know, like uh, like the dream team, basically the person like who you're competing with to the left of you has their own fan base and audience and has significant talents and networking. So, um, you know, it's not the easiest sport to probably get stuff that no one else has. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like right now, um, you know, like the the newsbreakers or the transactional guys, they're they're sort of like the low post big men. You know, they're they're there to dunk. You know, just feed them in the post, they're gonna dunk. And the rest of us, you know, we gotta kinda either gotta be a slasher or we gotta be the out, out there sitting on a three point line, you know, hoping we can knock down that open look when we get it. And that's sort of what you gotta do when it comes to being a, a NBA writer now. You gotta figure out what you what your strengths are, the areas that, you know, where where people kinda wanna hear your voice and sort of stick with that. Because I think if you try to be too much and try to be too versatile, um, you to water down whatever you know, your message is or whoever you're trying to be. And so uh, it, I respect the people who have the range, you know, who, who can do it, do it all and, and do it well. Um, but I also know, you know, where my, where my strengths are and I try to stay there.
Michael Lee is the Clay Thompson of the athletic. The man has a lot of range. He could beat you in many, many different ways. Uh, he's a senior NBA writer um, for the athletic. Uh, always a great guy to talk to both in person and, uh, and uh, in any kind of uh, media setting. Mike, I can't thank you enough for giving me a little bit of time today. I wish you nothing but the, the best of success and health. Very exciting uh, to have a newborn in your family and, uh, and we'll all be reading you, man. I I appreciate uh, this very much. Thanks for coming on today to the sports media podcast. All right. Thank you too. Take care. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, as I said at the top, we now bring in Robert Klemko. He is a Washington Post writer, an investigative reporter in the sports department who at the moment has been assigned to news during the COVID-19 pandemic. Robert Klemko worked with me for many years at Sports Illustrated. You became familiar with his uh, words there with the MMQB. Uh, Klemko also worked um, for USA Today. Prior to that, he probably has some other things on his uh, on his impressive resume that uh, I did not mention, but I always appreciate him as a colleague. It's, it's great to have him uh, back once again on the Sports Media Podcast. Robert, how are you, man? How are things? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, I thank you actually for your time. And I, I, so here's where I want to start with. Um, you know, this is not just an interesting time, surreal time in the in the larger world. It's an incredibly interesting time for reporters, and specific to you. You know, you took this Washington Post job, and correct me if I'm wrong, to be an investigative reporter in the sports department to sort of do these long enterprise pieces that relate to sports, and and that changed, or that has changed over the last couple of months because the either the post reassigned you or you asked for a reassignment. Can you tell me um, just how it's been for you? One, how did you go from sports to news at the moment? And two, how has that transition been? Well, they asked for volunteers when the virus started. Um, and then we realized that there just wasn't going to be enough sports happening to fill up a sports page or really much interest in, in sports and some of the work we were doing, um, given, you know, the, the onslaught of the virus and, and the upcoming election and just all of these factors that kind of converged. Um, and they asked for volunteers to come out of sports and work for different departments. So, like, my editor in, in sports investigations is on the education desk. Um, and Kent Babb, who I sat next to, who's also part of my team, uh, has been working uh, for the health team. And so a number of people from sports volunteered and I volunteered specifically to travel um, because I I guess I was really interested in figuring out, you know, the effect the virus was having on the ground across the country. And I felt like, uh, you know, I'd only been there for two or three months and I really hadn't written much at the time that I was super proud of. And I wanted to kind of pull my weight around there. Um, and I wanted to show, you know, kind of the re- kind of reporter that I was capable of being. And so I went to uh, Las Vegas 
I went to Seattle, Washington for two weeks and lived out of a hotel room. Um, had datelines in Wyoming, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado. And uh, basically, I've moved out to Colorado temporarily um, to cover the virus's impact here in this region. And now with George Floyd's killing and these protests and this reckoning uh, for police brutality, I've, I've begun to contribute on that beat as well. Robert, what um, what can you tell me from your reporting perspective uh, about COVID-19 nationally? What are some of the things that you've seen that we would just not see if we had not left our area? I mean, we always talk about the diversity of this country and, and how polarized our politics are. And I think that that is reflected so strongly in the reaction to COVID-19. I mean, there's a very clear delineation between the behavior of the people that believe in it and and believe it's a, a big risk and, and the people that don't. Um, and you actually see that more when you start to cover these social issues, these cultural issues like the George Floyd protests and Trump rallies where, you know, you have this group of people who feel it's important to protest but are still taking precautions and wearing masks and uh, for the most part. Um, and then you have this group of people who are anti-protest and they just happen to also be the group of people that don't believe the virus is as serious as everyone's saying, that aren't wearing masks, that are bringing their kids out to these things, that aren't taking any of the precautions that are being recommended by the CDC or the state health departments. Um, but, you know, you're seeing all these images on Twitter. I mean, this isn't exactly news. I think the thing that people don't think about is how much impoverished communities have been affected by all of this. I mean, I did a story out of uh, the Navajo Nation, which spans, you know, Utah, Arizona, uh, New Mexico, where 36% of people are without running water. And there's a good chunk of people without internet access. Um, and the resources that they are lacking contribute to um, how effective uh, and devastating this virus has been. Um, and the lack of federal money and the slow um, arrival of federal money has exacerbated all of that. And I think those are the stories that I've really taken pride in telling because um, that's not, you know, that's not what you're seeing on the news. That's not what you're seeing on television. But there are people very quietly suffering in impoverished communities uh, as a result of this virus in, in ways that I think most people are not aware of. Robert, you covered the, um, the Donald Trump rally in Tulsa. And I wondered, did your, did your sports reporting experience at all prepare you to cover something like that? Yeah, you know, I, I thought about this the other day, and I think it did. You know, when you're covering a football game, you rush into a locker room. You know, there's the big crowd of reporters outside, and, and then they give the team 10 minutes to kind of cool down and talk to each other and shower before they let all the reporters in. And then you have maybe a 15-minute window to talk to as many people as you can to figure out what your story is if you don't already know it and um, interview folks before they leave. And, you know, people have very little patience. Most, most of the guys aren't sticking around before going to the bus, especially if they're the away team. And I think it forces you to um, 
cut conversations short, learn how to manage uh, interviews in terms of pulling out when you're, when you're not going to get what you, uh, what you came for and moving on to the next person. And so, you know, the story I wrote out of Tulsa was, hey, what are rally goers who are leaving the rally with kids, you know, ages 10, 11, 12, 13, and looking across the street and seeing these Black Lives Matter protesters, what are these families telling their kids about Black Lives Matter? Um, because that, that's always interest me, kind of the messaging to children experiencing this moment in history. Uh, and you only have a few minutes, right? Because people are on their way to their cars. There's really not that many kids out there. So you, you, you end up doing these three, four, five minute interviews and then saying thank you and moving on. And it's just like an NFL locker room, except, you know, you're outdoors and there's a potential for violence. Robert, um, how did you, you know, we're, we're in an era, of course, where there are a lot of people who are distrustful of the media, um, you know, the president of the United States is is, is calling um, reporters the, you know, the enemy of the people, the enemy of the state. Uh, you know, there, there are a million other shows that sort of can go into the to the issues of this. But what's it like to be on the ground uh, interviewing people uh, amidst all this? Um, is did you feel um, I don't know. Did you feel ever that your uh that your safety was at risk? Did you feel animus or tension from those you wanted to, um, from those you wanted to interview? And then maybe even, and hopefully once you start interviewing people, they realize that you're a human being just like them. Could you give a, my listeners just some perspective on what that's been like? The reactions are very varied. You do get the minority of people who say you're fake news. I don't want to talk to you or you're fake news. You know, what do you think about that? And they want to argue about whether or not, you know, we are fake news. And usually there's really not much merit in having that conversation just because there's so many other people to talk to, right? <laughs> um, I haven't felt that I was ever physically in danger. Um, and I think part of that is, you know, you're talking to people in large crowds and usually in crowds, cooler heads will prevail. And if somebody's being too aggressive, they, they'll be... Um, checked by the rest of the people that are sort of of their interests and on their side because they don't want that behavior to represent their cause. Um, I have seen, you know, I was in Albuquerque the other day outside the state capitol where they were uh, having a special legislative session to discuss, you know, coming back from COVID and also, you know, police brutality and police reform. And there were a group of conservative protesters outside and there was a young camera guy, couldn't have been more than two or three years out of college, who was filming the protesters, you know, not even really asking questions, just kind of filming the scene. And then this older guy started screaming fake news at him, fake news, and being really threatening physically. And then the guy ran, ran off, and he said he was um, uncomfortable. And I can understand that. But, you know, I went and talked to the same guy, and... and um, I told him I was at the Washington Post and he, you know, had a much less physical reaction to me. And I think part of that is just like, you know, not looking like I'm somebody that is going to run away um, and just, you know, maintaining a confident posture as you're as you're talking to people and and not kind of shying away from some of the criticism that you get from people out there. Um, but it has it has been hard. I think the, the, the toughest challenge is 
making people relate to you while they're wearing a mask and you aren't because there's they automatically have this feeling that you know you're some sort of sheep or worse you look down on them for not wearing the mask and so anything that you ask them and anything they say is going to be twisted out of context to fit your uh perceived liberal leanings because you know you don't want to spread this deadly virus uh to the people that you're talking to so you know i the short answer is the reaction has been mixed um but most people are fine with talking to the washington post i'm mark chapman welcome to the planet premier league podcast each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Robert, at a, at a basic level, do you miss covering sports right now? Or is this... Um, here, I'll, I'll sort of personalize this. It doesn't mean you feel this way. Like what, what, what the stuff I'm reading for you feels important to me. Like it feels like you are covering something that's historic, monumental, of great importance, of something that's bigger than you. And that's not to say I don't think sports is important because obviously both of us have made our living in it, but it doesn't feel nearly as important as what you're doing. But you know, I'm not doing that. You're doing that. So I wonder for you, as you've been covering this, do you miss Do you miss being around the games? Do you miss sort of being around sports? Or have you found that whatever your sort of uh, journalistic compass is, it's being taken care of by what you're doing now? Yeah, you know, when I was writing sports in, the, in those last six months at Sports Illustrated um, and in the first three months at the Washington Post, you know, I really wasn't going to games that often. Um, and my focus wasn't necessarily on on the actual sport. I mean, I covered Kellen Winslow Jr.'s rape trial in Southern California. I wrote about Antonio Brown, um, you know, sexually harassing a woman that we uh, found and, and uh, owing a bunch of people money for, you know, services rendered. Um, the last story I wrote for the Post in sports was about doping and horse racing, right? And the latest federal indictment that had come down on the topic. So, you know, I guess I wasn't really your traditional sports writer. Um, Was it fun to go to the occasional game because, you know, I needed to talk to a player in the locker room or a coach? Of course. You know, I I grew up on football. I got into sports writing because I love football um, and I love competition and, and, in the last few years for me, as I've kind of grown up a little bit and started paying attention more to politics and social issues, um, going to the games hasn't been as exciting for me as when I was 22, 23 years old. And, and I think, you know, I think that's natural. I mean, the way that our politics have become so divisive um, and then this extraordinarily historic um, shift in the political spectrum and, you know, this president's um, tenure and this clash that we're about to see in November, I think everybody is a little bit more interested in politics or they're just really trying hard not to be. Um, 
you, uh, I wanted to ask you about you asking NFL GMs uh, uh, what you asked them. But before that, um, and maybe we talked about this the last time you were on this podcast, but I, I would imagine that it's gotten increasingly worse, uh, if that's the case. Um, I, I've seen you tweet out some of your mentions uh, on social media. And, I mean, how do I – it's a fucking shit show. And I, that's probably not even being <laughs> – probably not even being fair to shit shows uh you get you you know you get incredibly racist stuff the n-word uh you get called some horrible things i've seen people i think this is from you put this out people like sending you your address or your phone number i mean really just horrific shit um what has that increased as you've now delved into more news and politics than sports or I don't know. Has it flipped because you, you're not dealing with as crazy sports fans and, and maybe people aren't doing that? I, I really don't know. And obviously, as a white male, I don't even know what it would be like to get these kind of mentions. So what, what is social media like right uh, for you right now? The worst it ever was was when Antonio Brown got cut by the Patriots after our story at SI. And all of these Patriots fans um, really took – offense to it and felt like I got him cut as opposed to his behavior getting him cut. And um, that's when, you know, I got like the, a lot of the inward stuff and the threats against my family and like texting me, my address, like, and that was a little bit unnerving and SI security handled all that really, really well. Um, and I didn't ever feel like there was an immediate threat or anything like that. But in terms of just like the general, criticism and that sort of targeting, you know, over the course of doing the job, excluding the big stories. Um, I would say it is a little bit worse with the Washington Post, um, just because, you know, we have been painted as the enemy, enemy of the people. Um, and, and I wish that a lot of these people that criticize us for those things um, could sit on, on an editorial meeting or listen to a conversation between myself and, you know, any of my national editors, because, you know, we go to great lengths to try to walk down the middle and try to understand both sides of any sort of debate and go to people for comment who are being criticized in stories. Um, and, I, you know, I think a lot of people misunderstand the, the journalistic process. And, and I think there's more work that we can do to help people understand that. Uh, in terms of the racist stuff, I mean, everybody's, you know, everybody's brave behind the keyboard. I, I think 90% of these people that call us black writers, the N word on Twitter or Instagram or in texts or messages or whatever, would never say it to our faces. And I think that makes it easier to sort of dismiss. Robert, um, the NFL is going to make its attempt to return to play. And, um, and I actually think that's a lead that's that's going to get to the field. Can't tell you what's going to happen in the world, but I think the NFL is, uh, if any league's going to try to give it a real shot, the NFL is going to give it a real shot. I think there's just too much money at at, at stake for for that league, among other things. Um, what will be interesting this year, Robert, in the NFL, on top of obviously the amazing storylines, Tom Brady and Tampa, et cetera, is that players have basically told you already that they're going to be activists. They're going to sort of show some activism uh, prior to games uh, on the field. Um, we saw what happened 
couple years ago uh, with Colin Kaepernick and how NFL owners reacted. Uh, they're pretty obvious they prevented him from being in the league. And they, um, you know, they, they, they did what they did. They, they, they ended up, um, I think, clearly making a statement as to how they felt about this stuff. Roger Goodell has now said that won't be the case this year. We haven't really heard from any owners yet, but the league seems to sort of understand that this is a different moment and that they know that players are going um, to be active on this. If the NFL does get back to play Robert amidst COVID-19, what are you expecting from um, from this? And I think maybe even more interesting from your perspective, having covered the NFL for such a long time, what do you expect the reaction will be of owners in individual markets? You know, I think the most telling thing about this moment in NFL history in terms of activism is not anything anybody said, but what one person has not said. And you haven't heard anything from Jerry Jones. And correct me if I'm wrong, but... He hasn't spoken on this issue in the last couple months since it's come to the forefront in the league. And it might be the first league-wide issue that Jerry Jones has been silent on for this long, long, you know, for this period of time. Um, And I think it says a lot. I think he and other owners are going to be willing to take a backseat to the interests of the players. And I think that's only because public opinion has shifted so much. I mean, that video of George Floyd is going to wind up changing the world. I mean, you just look at all the laws and policies that are changing at a local level. I mean, just ignore all the roadblocks and gridlock in Washington. Just look at local police departments now going out of their way to prioritize social services over traditional police measures. That's not because of, you know, anything Trump said or anything Biden said. Uh, that's because at a grassroots level, people want change in terms of policing and police brutality. And so I think owners recognize that the public opinion has shifted and they're going to take a backseat to players and allow players led by coaches and general managers to figure out a message that expresses solidarity. Because I think that's what general managers and coaches want. They 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 want players to be able to express themselves in a way that doesn't suggest that teammates are at odds with each other. Um, and I think that individual teams will figure that out on their own, and owners for the first time are just going to be quiet on this entire issue. It's interesting. We'll see. Um, you know, I've heard many people sort of say, like, you know, we'll know how the NFL stands when we hear from Kraft, Jones, Mara Rooney, or don't hear from them on this issue. Um, and that's uh, – I think that's, I agree with you, that's sort of the tell when it comes to the, the league. You know, so much, Robert, so much of the league, this is my last one for you, so much of the NFL, um, how we process the NFL is essentially through television, through Fox, ESPN, NBC, CBS, et cetera. Um, what do you expect media coverage-wise from them when it comes to this stuff? They, you know, there were some executives uh, who were incredibly fearful about showing any of this. Um, and, you know, some executives believe that the ratings downturn was because of Kaepernick, you know, there's a whole other school of thought that I subscribe to that you could sort of point to many things beyond that, including competitiveness of the games that year, and um, the rules changes, and quarterbacks not doing well, whatever. It's just sort of the endless debate of all time. The ratings are back up. Um, but this, this, to me, is an incredibly important issue, Robert, is like how honest will the NBCs or the ESPNs or the CBSs be 
regarding this moment, or um, are they going to try their best to really just keep it to football and 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 try not to try to avoid perhaps what is going on on the field in front of them? It's an interesting question, and I think you know I, I have no way to predict, but I think each network is going to handle it differently. Um, I think they have seen that there is a portion of NFL fandom that will walk away if presented with too much of this. I mean, the thing that you hear predominantly from fans on Twitter when you're a sports writer who writes about politics and race and culture is that they go to sports as an escape. You know, that's that's their Sunday afternoon, Sunday night escape from all of this. Um, and I think as we, you know, gear up to this election, that's going to be especially the case where, you know, you have a lot of people seeking refuge from what's happening in the news. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if networks tried to minimize their coverage of all of this. I think the one thing that they will focus on are the charitable efforts, um, you know, performed by NFL players uh, towards finding some sort of, you know, fighting for social equality. And so maybe I think a strategy for them could be to avoid any discussion of police brutality, but to focus on, you know, diverse initiatives of NFL players in their communities um, in terms of, you know, the pregame show conversation and all that stuff. I don't imagine um, there's going to be a lot of discussion of Kaepernick until and unless he's actually signed to a team because they have found out that it, it does hurt their bottom line uh, when people come to these games, uh, you know, seeking refuge from the news and they don't get it. Robert, is there, uh, is there anything else you want to add before we let you go today? I just thank everybody for, you know, for listening and indulging in this conversation. You know, I know that for a lot of people and for myself included, it's difficult to care about things or tolerate conversations about things that don't directly affect you every day. Um, and I just hope that the more we talk about this stuff and the more people begin to learn about, you know, issues of inequality across the country that, you know, we all become more tolerant of hearing out the other side. I know that I have in talking to, you know, conservatives, Trump supporters at these rallies. Um, it's kind of put a human face on on all of these issues for me. And, uh, you know, I hope that you know, through all this discourse and through you turning your sports media podcast into, um, you know, this sort of forum that we advance some sort of positive change. That's well said, Robert. I hope so as well. Um, Robert Klemko is an investigative reporter in the sports department of the Washington Post. Uh, but if you've been reading him over the last couple of months, he's been assigned to the news side during COVID-19 and has covered stories from, as he just said in this podcast, essentially from around the country. It's really been fascinating to uh, to read. Robert, uh, listen, man, I, I really appreciate you coming on. I, you know, I always uh, I always appreciate you and enjoyed you as a colleague, and uh, and I wish you and yours nothing but the best of health and uh, and success. Thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you, Richard. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Michael Lee, my excellent colleague at The Athletic, and Robert Klemko, my former colleague at uh, Sports Illustrated, for uh, their insights and an interesting conversation. Uh, certainly read both of those guys, and uh, if you're on uh, Twitter, follow their, uh, follow their accounts, and you'll get their latest uh, updates each and every week. Previous uh, podcast guests, if you enjoyed today's conversation, J.A. Donde, the director of the sports journalism 
uh, program at Medill University at Northwestern University. We, uh, we had a really interesting discussion just on uh, where we are today in uh, the nexus of sports and social justice, the nexus of sports and race, um, what JA's students are telling him about heading into the field, where does their optimism and passion stand, and we also spoke about um, the NBA's return to play plan. JA covered the NBA for a long time and had pretty unique insights. Jeff Gluck was also part of that podcast. He's a athletic NASCAR writer and discussed NASCAR's decision to prohibit the display of the Confederate flag from all NASCAR events. We taped that before, obviously. Um, everything that uh, happened with uh, uh, Bubba Wallace. And so I will bring uh, Jeff Gluck back in terms of uh, sort of updating where NASCAR is as we head down uh, the road on uh, on that sport. Prior to uh, Jeff Gluck and Jay Donde had a panel, basically, of uh, four um, black journalists, Lisa Wilson of The Athletic, ESPN's Michael Leaves, Raina Cash of the Savannah Morning News, and Sportsnet's Donovan Bennett. Um, and they basically just discussed sort of how they were processing the, uh, the events in the United States and, and um, their careers and where they think um, where they think the sports media business is going as it relates to people of color. So that was, uh, I appreciated that time. It was almost a two-hour podcast. They were uh, just incredibly thoughtful, and, um, and I'm glad I happened to do that. Before that, we had some traditional media talk with John O'Ran of the Sports Business Daily. My colleague, Katie Strang from The Athletic, came on to talk about her investigative work. Before that, Booger McFarland, Tom Verducci, Bob Costas, and uh, you can basically just head down the list of the archives and hopefully you will find something that uh that interests you uh the way this podcast uh, stays around quite frankly just no bullshit here is basically if um if the reviews are good if people listen obviously and the, the reviews are good so if you like this please uh head over to apple uh stitcher wherever you listen to this leave a five-star review leave a comment that stuff helps uh people who uh, run this podcast uh, do monitor that so that is really always helpful to me let me thank my producers again, Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. I appreciate them working and working from their homes over the last couple months to put this one together. Thanks to everybody, Cadence 13, Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, John McDermott. And uh, thank you, of course, uh, out there for uh, listening to this podcast and supporting this podcast now uh, four or five years at this point, given that we were doing this at, uh, at Sports Illustrated too. So thank you very much. Hopefully everybody out there stay safe. Stay healthy, and we'll see you soon on the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast.